I just say that in a way of commending something deeply valuable and important to me to you. I was on an airplane this week, and uh, the guy that I sat next to earbudded me right away. So, so if you fly fairly often, you know you know the body language. It was communicated in no uncertain terms. I don't want to talk. And uh, so, sat next to him. I pulled out my giant iPad and my uh, my Apple pencil. And he actually had his out already, and he opened up a, a picture of a bridge. And uh, it looked like a pretty old bridge in an urban context. And I actually was the one snooping. He wasn't paying attention to what I was doing, but I, I was snooping on him. Uh, I actually had my uh, plan already set to, to open up this scripture for today and to begin to diagram it and draw it out and, and sort through and understand what God was saying in Proverbs 3. So there was this moment where... Uh, where I look over and realize that the man is either an architect or a structural engineer, and he's actually drawing schematics along with the bridge, proposing a repair to this 100-year-old bridge or so. At the same time, uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, have, have a, a, an image of Proverbs 3 on my iPad, and I'm actually drawing out diagrams and, and seeing connections and so on and so forth. And it, it just occurred to me as I'm sitting there, and we're both working, we're both doing our work, Here's a man dealing with uh, his subject matter, which is relatively old in his world. A hundred-year-old bridge is a fairly old bridge. And he is focused on repairing something that's broken. He's, he's working around all of the insufficiencies of his subject matter. And I'm sitting right next to him, and I'm trying to understand something many thousand years old that is perfect and that doesn't break and that doesn't break down. And that is, in many ways, a bridge to the good life. And I just felt fortunate, just felt blessed to have God's word, to have this incredible thing that God has provided that transports us into his goodness. Let me read the text to you. But as I read the text to you, this first pass through, I want to ask you to look for the promises in this passage, the the predictions of goodness in this passage. We'll read it a number of times, but I want you to see how even in this moment, in this particular text, this is a sort of a bridge to the good life. So as I read the first 11 or 12 verses, listen, but also listen for, I think there's about six or so promised uh, outcomes in or or, or, uh, predictions in this section. Uh, Proverbs chapter three, verse one, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So maybe you picked up on these six promises, these six good outcomes 
Uh, verse 4, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 6, he will make your path straight. Verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Verse 12, the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Who wouldn't want all of that? Who wouldn't want this straight path that this section of Proverbs predicts? Well, all of this goodness, this is very important to, 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 to catch this. All of this goodness is the consequence of being what I'll just refer to as an all-in Christian. The word all is a very important word in the Christian faith. All of this goodness, all of this soundness is rooted in this sense of being all in. As, as verse, uh, verse 3 says, I'm sorry, verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the kind of the central bit of this passage. All of these promises come through this all in commitment to the Lord that the scriptures call us to. And the scriptures do call us to this all-in kind of commitment. Whatever your hand finds to do, the scriptures say, do it all with all your might as unto the Lord. Jesus condenses the entire law into loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. This all-in sense is, is central to God's promises, the good life, is rooted in a complete commitment to the Lord. These are the promises that come to a wholehearted person. If you think about what James says about a double-minded man, what is, what is the consequence, what is the life outcome of a double-minded man? He is unstable in all his ways. The instability of his mind, the instability of his heart affections manifest out into his life so that his whole life is as unstable as his heart is. His whole life is as shaky as his commitment to God is. Proverbs 3 has the other picture in mind. This, the, the outcomes of, of these promises, the idea that he will make our paths straight, the idea that he will, he will fill our life with his goodness. I just pause here for a second and say, there are many things I have trouble with with the prosperity gospel, but I think mostly I have trouble with their definition of prosperity. I believe wholeheartedly that God does bless his people with God's definition of prosperity for that person. There are other things I would criticize, for instance, the, the, the timeline with which the prosperity gospel applies the promises of God. They have what we would call an over-realized eschatology. They think it's all going to happen too quick. But honestly, I think if those folks would just allow God to define prosperity, so much of their problems and their theology would be corrected. So if it sounds like I'm a prosperity theologian this morning, I am. I'm just using God's definition of prosperity and not, uh, not, not a jet, right? And not perfect health. But I do believe the Bible teaches that we should expect God to bless us as we seek him. I believe if I'm... If I'm not getting this all messed up, that that's actually the definition of faith in the New Testament. They believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So all of these predictions we see in verses 1 through 12, these outcomes, if we allow those outcomes to be measured and decided in God's hand, we can assuredly say that the man who makes God his whole trust 
that the man who invests himself entirely in God will experience a, a consequence of that that will be, in God's eyes, which is all that matters, prosperous. Friends, I was telling somebody the other day that I finally figured out what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be solid. Most of my life has been spent living in a paper mache age where nothing is sound, nothing is whole all the way through. Every institution that I grew up believing was important and respectable has proven in the last 20 years to be a hypocrisy, paper mache, empty, broken. The press has demonstrated unquestionable bias. Politicians have demonstrated unquestionable dishonesty. It seems like every day some person who we're supposed to respect, who honestly we want to respect, winds up showing themselves to be nothing more than a paper mache, falsehood. Think of all the instances of police corruption we've seen over the last two decades. Think of all the instances of priestly pastoral abuse. Friends, not to be too crude, but America's dad wound up being a serial rapist. Nothing is sound, it feels to me right now. It feels to me that every time we put our weight on anything, it winds up showing itself to be hollow and empty and false. So what I want to be when I grow up is I want to be sound. I want to be true all the way through. I want to be the same on the inside as I am on the outside. I want to be a man of integrity. I want to be an all-in Christian. I want to have one thing, not many things. I want to have a single passion, a singular vision. I want to live life wholeheartedly. I want to be all-in. Proverbs 3 tells me that that is no mistake. That to choose that life is wise that to choose that life is good, that that is an admirable goal for a 40-year-old who wants to be something when he grows up. And we'll focus mostly on verse 5 today and this question of trusting the Lord with all your heart. Verse 5 and 6, look with me again. Verse, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. I think you might be able to make the case, if you look at verses 5 and 6, that there's a wholeness represented even within those verses. You could say that verse one, uh, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, so we've got the heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, we've got the intellect. And in all your ways, acknowledge Him, we've got actions. You could say that just even in the commendation of verses 5 and 6, there's a whole life represented. The inner life, our intellectual life, and everything we do. The case is clear in these verses. What is being commended to us as wise, what is being commended to us as the point of living, is to put everything we have, everything we are, into trusting God. You know, I, I try, as I go throughout the week, not only to read God's Word and to study God's Word, but to pray for the congregation. I pray for you individually, but also as a congregation. And I try throughout the time to pay attention to how the Spirit leads those prayers and to see if anything's going on that I need to pay attention to, anything, any, any state of the sheep that the Lord would disclose to me. And I don't pretend to always get that right or even to always hear something. But this week and last week, I 
will tell you that it came back pretty strong that we need to just talk about trusting the Lord. And I don't honestly know why that is. And I may not know. You may not know, but you may. But let's spend some time today talking about an all-in trust of the Lord. Here's what I think will probably happen. As we work our way through this text, maybe even now, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and show you particular areas of your life that are not all in. Particular places and ways in which you are not trusting the Lord with all your heart, in which you are leaning on your own understanding. And it would be too exhaustive and too exhausting for me to get up every week and go through all the possible ways people aren't trusting God. Y'all would want to you know, just die at the end of that, you know, and I would too. But the Holy Spirit has a special way of speaking to us with hope and truth and saying, obviously not the only area in which we need to grow, but selecting that which is central. So I don't know. As I already begin to speak, are you consciously aware of something in which God would say, hey, this is not, this is not trust. This isn't trusting me. Let's work our way through this. What does it mean to trust God with all our heart? Well, if you look at verses 7 through 12, three areas come up. Three areas come up. By the way, this can be a quick sermon, so don't take too long in thinking about what you need to do. You might, you might wind up uh, thinking, hey, I, I, need, I need about 20 more minutes to think through this. Well, you're not going to get it from me, so, so you've got to stay at your toes today. Verses 7 through 12 begin to show us three particular areas of life that we can examine to consider this question of how much we trust God. Are we really all in? Uh, look, three, the, the outline we'll be working through as these verses unfold are three areas. And the first one is self-talk. The second area is our stuff. And the third area is our suffering. These are three areas that we'll look at. They may not be the, the point that the Lord would have for you today. But these are three applications that are in our text. Verse 7. Be not wise in our own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What's going on here? Well, I've labeled this particular point self-talk, and let me explain to you why. I think that the idea here is that there is an ongoing point of pride, an ongoing pride in which somehow the self-dialogue happening inside uh, communicates that you and what you think or what you feel is trustworthy and valid. Uh, we are so about validating emotions these days when very often our emotions are completely invalid. There used to be this thing, uh, this, this thing, this used to be the goal of education uh, about a thousand years ago called the Ordo Amoris, which just means the ordered affections. I think it was Socrates, I forgot to look it up, but it was one of the big three Greek philosophers, might have been Aristotle, I don't remember, but one of them said the basic goal of education is to help a young person grow into ordered affections so that he responds rightly to the stimulus around him. He feels what he ought to feel when he is exposed to this or that. 
I believe it's C.S. Lewis's book, Men Without Chests, in which he, he, he discusses this very issue. And uh, he begins to mention this idea of standing with someone looking at a sunset or something like this. And, and um, C.S. Lewis says, you know, isn't this beautiful? Uh, isn't this, isn't this uh, praiseworthy? And the man with him, a, a cynical man, says, that's, that's, that's a subjective opinion that this is beautiful. And Lewis is like, well, that's not subjective at all. This is objective. The right response to this moment is to be happy and to be filled with awe. And if you don't have that feeling, you are wrong. Right? This sense that what you should feel in a given moment is objectively prescribed by God, not up to whatever, whatever uh, piece of trash floats up in the septic tank that is your heart. I'm supposed to pull out the right thing to respond in the right moments. Lewis, Lewis talks about uh, this idea that when a baby's in the room, the universal, appropriate, godly response is to think that that baby's cute and to coddle the baby and to, to baby talk. This is the appropriate response in the moment. And Lewis said that he himself, when he's around babies, feels no such thing. But he acknowledges <laughs> that he acknowledges that that is his fault. That is his flaw. He doesn't reinterpret the entire cosmos to say, since I have a different feeling about babies, there are two legitimate feelings about babies. Friends, do not be wise in your own eyes means don't treat that which emerges from your heart as automatically valid. Be skeptical of yourself. Don't sit at the, the don't sit at your heart's feet. Anatomically confused right now. Don't sit at the feet of your heart and say, "Heart, whatever you have to teach me today is good because you are wise." Do not be wise in your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Now, this sense of I, I automatically my my emotions, my feelings, my my. My insights are automatically valid would be a way in which we would be we would tend to be wise in our own eyes. Right. What I feel, what I think my take on things is automatically valid. There's also this this very unique. I'll just call it the, the, the venti mocha form of language that's emerging in our culture. And I just want to point it out. And that is simply to say that. Everybody feels like they have their own language or that they have their own tribe and that you speak my language, but this person doesn't speak my language. And I do believe that there's absolutely a role for that. There's a cultural level in which some people speak our language more than others. But I want to tell you that if you're a born again child of God, the word of God is your language. It's that's your language. That's your heart language. That's your central language, not your cultural preferences. As strong as those may be, the word of God is your language. And so we want to use terminology that reflects the word of God. We want to think through the word of God. We want our brain to be filled with the word of God. We want to speak the word of God to one another. We all grew up. This is the, we're going to see this in Acts later on. We all grew up in a, a babble of confused languages. Through sin, we all speak right past each other. Right Through sin, we all speak right past each other because we are all carrying around our own way of speaking, our own way of thinking, our own definition to a million different words that we all have in common but mean different things. 
But when the Holy Spirit comes, when salvation comes to God's people, Babel is reversed and we all get on the same page again. So that universally across the world, no matter what actual language you speak, and culturally, even in this country, we are all brought back into one common language, and that language is the Word of God. To be wise in your own eyes would be to elevate preference, to elevate culture, to elevate disposition above the Word of God. And there are a million ways we can do this. Back in uh, 1993... I was confronted, I think I've told this story a million times, but I was confronted with someone who loved people a lot more than I did. It was my wife. And I could just see clearly, you could label my thing a million different ways. You could say introversion, you could say all sorts of kinds of things. But the truth is, is she's just better than me. In this area, it was just better. She was more like Jesus I'm naturally shy. I don't like to be the center of attention. I like to be alone. But as I looked at this young woman, I saw very clearly that's more like Christ. That's more like Jesus. And I'm not called to be like her, but I am called to be like Christ. And so at 18 years old, I began to say, it's not okay for me to be just introverted because I'm introverted. Or just quiet because I'm quiet. That's, that's not okay. I should be like Jesus. And it's been an awkward and clumsy process and continues to this day. And many times I would rather revert to my own preferences than the clear teachings of the Bible as it relates to loving other people. Many times. I do it all the time. But when I do it, what's happening is I'm being wise in my own eyes. I'm letting that stuff which is naturally in me dictate the course of my life rather than looking to God's word and applying God's standard to my actions and to my thoughts. Don't be wise in your own eyes. May refer to these kinds of things. I think there's an element of repentance that's important here. Look at this again. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I'm going to give you two options you don't, need to, you don't need to choose, but I'm going to give you two options for what this could be. It could be turn away from evil means what everything I was just talking about, this evil inclination towards seeing self as ultimate, right? to seeing self-importance as ultimate. It could be that turn away from evil means turn away from this sense of automatically validating everything you feel and think. But it could be this idea of sinful self-talk that talks us into sinning, saying things like, you're different, your situation's different, uh, you can handle this. How many, how many romantic relationships are, are run off the rails sexually uh, because of you can handle this, don't be a legalist, this is not a big deal, this is okay, and so on and so forth. Friends, what I would propose to you is this possibility. That uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, there may be things that you've decided are okay that aren't. Little choices here and there that you've, you've persuaded yourself are okay for you. And they aren't. And that what this passage is referring to is this idea of how we kind of deceive ourselves. Friends, if, if some of the things you thought were said out loud, you would have no friends, right? Like... There's just some terrible things that go on in our brain. And over time, when there's no check, when there's no light, 
these things seem reasonable. And they begin to get us all jacked up on how we're actually living. Because we've made all of these compromises without anyone ever knowing because it's all self-talk. And we're saying, you know, it's okay for me to feel this or it's okay for me to do this. It's okay for me to go here for such and such a reason. This is Most people would tell you you need to do this, but I've, it's, that's a different situation for me. And we have all of this nonsense that's speaking to our, into our hearts and to our minds, and it's leading us far astray. And if we would just say, I want to be all in, and I want to take all of that. I can't consciously do this because I'm, I'm, I'm too dumb to do it. But God, I put it all back on the table. Show me all the ways in which I've compromised. In your faithfulness and your kindness and your gentleness, I know you'll do it in a very fatherly way, but show me all the little stupid things I'm telling myself that are letting me get out of just trusting you. Show me all the ways I'm keeping my own counsel and ought not to be. Because the prediction here makes, the prediction here makes me think this is what it's referring to. Because it says that if you will do this, if you will stop being wise in your own eyes, but you will fear the Lord, and you will turn away from evil, then you will find healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This week on base camp, a guy, I, I, I won't, this is, I would violate HIPAA laws if I gave too much detail. Uh, this the guy on base camp said, you know, I'm not feeling very well. I have this problem, that problem. And a bunch of us uh, said, hey, you need to go to the doctor. And he goes to the doctor and he finds out that he's had strep throat for a while. And I remember thinking, at when he wrote back on Basecamp, I remember thinking, that guy's going to feel so much better in like two days. He's been, you know how it is, like you, you just feel dead when you have strep. And, and I'm like, man, he's just going to feel so much better. I talked to him the other day. I'm like, you feel better? He's like, I feel a lot better. <laughs> it's amazing. Do you have the faith to give God a blank check this morning and say, would you show me all the stupid self-talk that's led to all these millions of little parasitic compromises? Do you have the faith to do that? Because I would tell you that if you will do that, if you will say, God, I want to be sound. I want to be solid all the way through. I want to be an all-in Christian. Show me all the ways. First of all, God will be faithful. He will be kind. And you're going to feel so much better. There will be healing for your flesh. Wellness, refreshment for your bones. So the first area that we could examine, we have examined, would be this area of self-talk. How we believe the stuff that we say deep inside. Number two, our stuff. Verse nine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your will be bursting with wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, I'm saying, so it's one of the, it's the basic problem of uh, today's version of Christianity is we just don't know what to do with the Old Testament anymore. It's just your clumsy, awkward, we're like me dancing when it comes to the New Testament. Like, it's like, I don't really know what to do right now. I'm in the Old Testament. What does this even mean for me right now? Well, let me give you some clarity on this particular issue of giving. Uh, one thing we've said a number of times is that you never see a diminishment of God's expectations in the New Testament. You only see an elevation of God's expectations in the New Testament, right? So 
So the, the expectation against, uh, against sexual morality goes from actually physically sleeping with someone to lust, right? Jesus says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The same goes true with, with murder. It used to be you actually had to kill someone. Jesus says, no, the standard's higher than that. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. If you hate someone in your heart, then you've murdered them. The standards are always going up, not down. That may give you a clue as to what God is calling us to do with our finances. We don't look at the Old Testament standard of tithing and say, well, that's been lifted off. Now I don't have to give. The truth is, is that if anything, the expectations would be much higher. But let me go a step further than that. If your argument or thought is, is that somehow uh, the Old Testament is gone, the the New Testament has come, we're no longer under the law, and that therefore this idea of honoring the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce is no longer pertinent, I would just tell you that actually the idea of honoring God with your wealth comes well before the law. The idea of honoring God with your wealth is a universal principle that started happening immediately with human beings who knew God, the very first ones. And it continues all the way through Scripture that this impulse to honor God with our wealth is clear. I think the thing we get hung up on is is we, we, we are... Jesus tells this parable in which he commends people to love their neighbors. And some dude in the audience goes, well, who's my neighbor? What's going on there? He doesn't want to be all in. He doesn't want to be all in. He's looking for a way not to be all in. In other words, all the little theological work I did to show you that that, that, that not giving isn't a legitimate option, it's, it's really not going to be helpful if your first instinct isn't, your first desire isn't, I just want to really be all in. If you're okay with not being all in, then whatever persuasion or whatever theology I present to you about finances will uh, will not fall on soft ground, will it? Because if you're looking for a reason not to be all in, you'll find one. We all do. Friends, uh, I will tell you point blank that there have been many times in my life when I have really struggled financially. I think... The majority of those have not been self-inflicted, but some of them certainly have. I remember a time when I took the girls. This was when we were, uh, the girls were really little, and they've been asking to go roller skating for a long time. And I just did not have the money to take them roller skating. Finally had the money. I took them roller skating. And we're at the roller rink, and I pull up. And just got the kids, bringing them in, and the van the, 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 the minivan that we bought for 800 bucks or whatever dies. So now I'm at the roller rink. My kids are going to go skating. And in about two hours when they're done, I've got to get them home. And I don't have a vehicle anymore. We lived about two miles from the house. I had some tools in the garage. And I thought, well, if I leave right now, while they, uh, while they skate, I can go get the tools, walk back, and try to fix the van. And I want to tell you that that entire walk was filled with no faith, was filled with accusing God, being angry with God, saying, I trust you, I'm following you, and look what's happening. Look what's happening. I can't even take my kids to the roller rink. I can't even be a provider 
in a basic way. And my walk there and back had just as many accusations against God and as many doubts against God as you could find. Friends, there should have been about a thousand potholes on that walk created by lightning strikes with me as a little smudge. It is hard to trust God with your finances. If you've ever actually just gone all out, it doesn't always have a happy ending as we think it might. Again, prosperity is real. I just don't get to define prosperity. God's never not blessed me for trusting him. But man, sometimes if I've looked in the wrong place for that blessing, I've really questioned, really questioned whether he had my back. That's in my heart. That's in your heart. It is not easy to trust God with our finances. It is not easy to put all of the noise and all of the excuses and all of the questions away. It's hard. But let's just be honest about what we're talking about. We're not talking about the finer points of dispensational theology. We're not talking about the finer points of the law fulfilled. We're talking about we, whether we as human beings believe God will take care of us when we honor him with our wealth. And when we don't honor him with our wealth, it's not a theological thing that keeps us from doing that. Well, it is in the sense that we just don't trust God. We just don't trust him with all of our heart. We are leaning on our own understanding. We are not acknowledging him in all of our ways. And let's just be honest with that. I would, I would be so refreshed and blessed by just someone saying, I'm not giving because I don't trust that God will take care of me. So there's a, a question of, are we all in with our self-talk? Are we all in with our stuff? And the third point is, are we all in with suffering? Verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Here's a question for you. Every other promise here has some sort of, a, I guess, a tangible result. If you don't trust in your own understanding, but you, but you trust in the Lord, uh, he will make your paths straight. If you don't listen to your self-talk, but you uh, listen to God's talk, you, you will have healing in your bones, refreshment, refreshment for your bones, healing for your, for your flesh. Uh, if you honor the Lord with your wealth, uh, some barn, I think it's metaphorical, right? Some barn in your life will be full. Some vat will be overflowing. There's kind of tangible consequences to these acts of faith. When I, when I consolidate my trust in God, he, he answers with these kind of tangible consequences. But friends, look at... Look at the promise in verse 12. What is the promise for the suffering Christian? Is the promise that it will end? Is the promise that it will be okay? No, the only promise is, is that God loves you. And is that enough for you? Is that enough of a promise for you? That all of the suffering you encounter in life will be paid back with assurance that God loves you. If that's the sum total of God's promise for the suffering soul, is that promise enough? The argument is that when suffering comes to the Christian, 
it is always 100% directed by his love. Uh, let's take m- me and a person who doesn't follow Jesus, and it's raining outside, let's say, and we're walking outside. The, the, the difference between us is not the number of raindrops that will hit us. We will both get wet. And the difference is not that God is sovereignly deciding how many raindrops will hit us. Me and this dude who, let's say, he just doesn't follow Jesus, we're, we're both going to be hit by rain, and God will be sovereign over every single raindrop that hits him and that hits me. And God will decide where they hit us to. You know? So he's like, I'm going to send this one here, I'm going to send this one here. He is absolutely sovereign over both of us. So there's no difference in the fact that we're both going to get rained on, and there's no difference in God's sovereignty over every raindrop. Well, what's the difference? What's different from me than him? The difference is, is that every raindrop that hits me is done out of love and intention to make me know his love, which God considers to be the greatest thing he can do for you. The greatest thing God can do for you is to convince you how much he loves you, is to show you how much he loves you. The ultimate prayer for maturity is that you comprehend the love of God. The difference between me and a guy who doesn't follow Jesus isn't that we won't both face suffering or that God's suffering isn't sovereignly overseen in both cases. The difference is a disposition that happens through Christ in which because I want, I, I've been given Christ's righteousness, then every raindrop, every bit of suffering that hits me is an act of love. It's an act of his kindness. It's a confirmation that he's my dad. Is that enough for you? Is the confirmation of your sonship, is the confirmation of your place in Christ, is the confirmation of his love enough for you? Does that make every raindrop worth it? Friends, that's the consolation that God offers. And that's the only consolation that God offers. The consolation for suffering that God offers is you will know me better. The all-in Christian hears that promise and says, at the very least, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I understand that that promise is good. I understand that that promise is the best thing I could possibly have. Well, I preached this passage two years ago um, on April 7th or so, two or three years ago, uh, five or six days after a church member lost their son, 21-year-old son, to drunk driving, to a drunk driver. Uh, He was struck and killed by a drunk driver. And I preached, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In a small church, when someone suffers to that extreme, everybody is hurting. Everybody's questioning God, including the pastor. And I stood up and said that we're just going to have to decide whether he is who he says he is. The word Lord there, the name Lord, is the, the covenantal name of God. Back in Exodus 3, it appears Moses is exiled in the wilderness. God appears to him in a burning bush and says, I see my people's pain. I'm going to heal them. I see my people's bondage. I'm going to set them free. 
And Moses responds, well, they're going to want to know your name. What name should I give him? And this name, Yahweh, I am what I am. Sometimes we say Yahweh, sometimes we say Jehovah. Why that name? Well, this name signifies God's self-existent nature. At first, God's name to us in our suffering is sovereignty. Sovereignty. I am. I am. I am. I'm over all things. Why would God give us this over all things name to us in our suffering? Because when you are tossed to and fro, he wants you to know that he's above the storm. When everything in your life is shaking, he wants you to know that he cannot be shaken. Every name that's intended for comfort is connected to this name. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. It is God's sovereignty combined with his love that brings comfort to someone in suffering. The simple truth is, is that God wants us to know that he is above being shaken, but he is with us in our shaking. And that he is sovereign over every shaking. As I preached this passage two, three years ago, mom and dad are in the congregation, about 50 others as well. I talked about how in, when, when, when suffering comes into our lives, it's like a, the, the roulette wheel of our hearts that's spinning. And that ball is going to rest. That marble is going to rest somewhere. It's going to trust something. It's going to trust self or it's going to trust God. It's going to trust God or it's going to lean on its own understanding. It's going to land on its own understanding. I don't know if suffering this morning is shaking you, has your heart spinning, but I know that something does. Friends, good old-fashioned puppy love can do this. Good old-fashioned, a good old-fashioned crush can set your heart spinning. Just good old-fashioned pleasure can set your heart spinning. So many things can set our heart spinning, and the question's always the same. What's it going to land on? Is it going to land on trusting God, or is it going to land on trusting self? Well, there's a way to tip the tables, to, to, to tip the odds in our favor. There's a way, and that is, is that everything I've described today, this self-talk, this, this relationship with stuff, this relationship with suffering, it works both ways. We can teach our hearts to trust more in God by behaving rightly on these things. We can turn the tables and make more of the table apt to trust in God the next time our heart gets spinning. That's, that's God's empowerment. That's God's promise. But ultimately, and only through this, Jesus came to earth with only one default. Every time his heart was spinning, it always landed on trusting God. He always trusted God. Friends, he, he had more enticements than we did. He had more allurements than we did. He had more suffering than we do. And every time, it landed in trust. What did Jesus do with this perfect record? He gave it away to those who would, by faith, approach God and say, I want to be all in. I want to be as solid through and through as Jesus. 
I want to be a man of integrity, a woman of integrity. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be whole. I want to trust God with all my heart and lean not in my own understanding and in all of my ways acknowledge him. I want to love God with my heart, with my mind, with my soul, all of it. I want to do everything to the glory of God. I want to be whole through and through. I'm tired of being double-minded. Approach God with that call and he will give you Christ. He will give you wholeness defined. He will give you integrity defined. And he will give you Christ not only to apply to your account, not in some way so that you can go back out into the world and be half and half all the time. He will give you Christ's wholeness so that you can begin to live a whole, fulfilled, filled, complete life. He will give you the wholeness of Christ so that you can begin to trust in God with all your heart. So that you can begin to acknowledge him in all your ways. So I would encourage you this morning. I'm just tired. I feel like my entire life has been full of disappointment in people and in institutions who told me I should love them or respect them or believe in them only to find out there's nothing there. Friends, I want to be a man that is whole. And I want to be a pastor of a church that is whole. I want my legacy in a hundred years, to, if there is one, to be all in. All in. All the way through. Solid all the way through. So many ambitions and aspirations are so far beyond us and unworthy of us. But this desire just to be really, truly His, fully His, to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts in good times and in bad, to see consistently over our lifetime that the marble keeps landing on trust. Boy, that's all I want out of this life. And that's all I want for us. I want us to be His all the way through. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us faith to respond to your word with appropriate emotions and appetites. Give us faith to respond to your word with the appropriate emotions and appetites, dear Lord. What do we need to trust you in? Your Holy Spirit, you know. What does this look like in our lives? Holy Spirit, you know. I know. I've got stuff. I've got a list. Thank you, Lord. Let me walk in light. Let me walk in urgency to obey what you've shown me. I want to be all in. I, I want to be yours entirely. I want to trust in you completely. I don't think this is a luxury or some kind of elevated version of Christianity. I think it's the only version of Christianity. I think that anyone who tries some other version is really really literally taking their soul into their own hands. Lord, help us to be a full, all-in group of people following you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.